0: Welcome to Macaulay's podcast, Stories from the Ridge. We're excited to feature Macaulay alumni, faculty, and friends as they tell their stories about their careers, experiences, and of course, how their time on the Ridge has impacted those. We'll have something for everyone as we discuss a variety of topics, all celebrating the special brotherhood of Macaulay with an emphasis on honor, truth, and duty. Now on to our episode. Today you'll hear from two of our faculty members as they discuss teaching history and how those lessons make the biggest impact in molding young men. Dr. Duke Ritchie has taken an interest in researching and teaching about men of honor, something so important here at Macaulay. He has studied many American history figures, including some of Macaulay's own alums. As Dr. Ritchie and Dean Macaulay discuss habits of mind, teaching and living on campus, they'll weave in stories about a few of Macaulay's own men of honor, including World War II veteran and legendary faculty member Yo Strang and Pulitzer Prize winner Ralph McGill, who you'll actually get to hear speak in a piece of a 1967 lecture as part of the Landon Lecture Series. Many thanks to Kansas State University and the Landon Lecture Series for the use of this recording. We hope you'll enjoy today's story from the Ridge.
1: I'm Sumner McCauley. I'm the Dean of Faculty and Curriculum here with my role is to think about what we teach and how we teach and supporting those who teach and get to have conversations with faculty that probe their course purposes and habits of mind and what we're trying to develop with our young men. So today we get to share some time thinking about these topics with Dr. Duke Ritchie. Duke Ritchie is a Howard Baker Chair of American History, a 1986 graduate of McCauley, earned his bachelor's from the University of the South, and masters from the University of Montana, and then PhD, University of Colorado. Here at Macaulay, he teaches AP U.S. History, has also taught an environmental history course. Partly, probably stemming from his own personal enjoyment of love of the outdoors. At one point, I think in his career, he worked for North Carolina Outward Bound. Currently serves as dorm head at Founders Dorm and sponsors an incredibly successful History Day program and runs our Character Leadership Community Camp. So excited to have you with us, Duke seems like your life here, in fact, at Macaulay, a good place to start, all the strands we described, sort of perfectly exemplifies questions within the research you continue to do on this intersection of character and leadership and environment. And maybe that's a place to start. We had a recent visit by a Macaulay alum and author of political commentary, commentator, John Meacham, who quoted the Greek philosopher Euclides' claim that character is destiny. Maybe you can start talking about some of the research you've done on Macaulay alums and how this resonates with your studies.
2: Yeah, um, I love this question. Um, I think character is destiny, but my big question often in teaching history and in doing research on people and telling stories, and and many of the stories that I've been working on the last few years have been about Macaulay alums and, and about John Strang, who, of course, taught here for over 50 years. My question is how do you have character? How do you get to the point where you have what we might say is a good character or strong character? And I think Heraclitus also said something to the effect, and this may not be true, but no one ever steps in the same river twice. And I, and then with character as is de, destiny – those two put together sort of that people learn character, like you learn from your mistakes, or you learn from you know good things happening. and one of the things that I see in history, and certainly in the case of, of a couple of people I've been looking at recently, is that they have people have experiences that shape how they think about things so you know we see this all the time in class just today we were talking about Lincoln and Lincoln's childhood I mean I say to the students all the time if you really want to understand some of these great characters in history you have to know their story you have to know how they got there and we do talk a lot about presidents and and in the story of Lincoln you know it is important to know that he came from the working class I mean he came from nothing and that shaped how he approached uh, everything politically including the idea of what opportunities were out there for laborers. And so, and he, he, he was not anti-slave because he thought it was a moral wrong at first. He was anti-slave in the expansion of slavery because he thought it would limit the opportunities for working class white guys like himself. If all of the expansion and movement into the new territory beyond the Mississippi River is going to be, if it's possible that you can have slavery there, then you're going to have the plantocracy locking up, you know, all of the American West, and that will limit opportunity. Anyway, that's an example of how someone's childhood shapes or their youth and their teenage years shape, and even into their early adult life shape, you know, something that comes to mean even— that comes to be important later politically. And then Lincoln, I mean, this is the beauty of Lincoln, he evolves. Um, So that's one thing is that people have these experiences. But then the other thing, and I want to talk about Ralph McGill specifically here in a second, but the other thing is that people who evolve to have good character are often open to the idea of changing You know, they learn. They don't step in the same river twice. They learn from an experience. So, um, you know, Ralph McGill, who's an example of someone who I've researched recently and continue to be just completely uh, uh, mesmerized by the more I read about him and learn about him. Let me say further that it is not at all my purpose here to simply berate the South. It is my region. I was born in it. I lived and had my education and worked in it. And I have an affection for it. Uh, Macaulay graduate, class of 1917, um, came from, if not not quite a working-class background, certainly Kind of, he came from the middle class. He, um, he was born on a farm in Saudi Daisy and then his family moved to Chattanooga. And his dad, they lived down here in Highland Park, and his dad worked in sales at a roofing company. And, um, and they went to Central Presbyterian Church, and the pastor there was Tom McCauley, who was one of the brothers of the founders. And he loved Ralph McGill. And so he said to his brothers, and this is in the first decade of the founding of the school, there's this great kid. I don't think he can pay, but everything. You know, he might be able to pay a little bit, but he's a he's a great kid. So McGill came to Macaulay and ended up being president of the Senate, captain of the football team. He was involved in theater. He was exactly the kind of guy at Macaulay who um, – would have won the grayson medal had the grayson medal existed which of course it didn't because clifford barker grayson had not died yet but the the long and the short of mcgill is that one of he he said later that coming to macaulay was the important experience in his life because Mm -hmm. it challenged him and and opened up a world to him that he didn't know existed he ended up going on to Vanderbilt, and then this long career as a journalist, and for those who don't know about him, he won a Pulitzer Prize for his work, his collected body of work really of, of being one of the greatest white voices uh, advocating for civil rights for, for African-Americans in the 1940s, 50s, and, and 60s. But, uh, you know, there are these moments throughout his life where he has an experience one of the experiences he had while he was at Vanderbilt working in the summers is he got a job on a roofing crew that his dad got him, you know, with the roofing company to make money, and he was the only white guy on the crew. And It was an all-black crew, and it was an incredibly, he writes about it, but it was this incredibly important experience in his understanding, and his evolution, in, in seeing blacks as his equal, that these were human beings who laughed and cried and lived and worked and and, uh, had value. And he he talks specifically about learning a lot from that crew.
1: What do you think allowed him to be open to learn from someone who is so different? I mean, that's obviously something we're trying to do at Macaulay. We try and bring guys here, expose them to some incredible diversity, expose them to things that aren't a part of what they might be traditionally sort of used to. But there's a core value system that we do want them to sort of have have what they're used to. But why, why do some folks learn and grow, and other folks see it
2: and then shut down? Is that something that's sort of surfaced in any of the research? Well, with him specifically, I think he was already there. He, um, when he was 14 or 15 at Macaulay, he fell in love with a girl at GPS, his mm. first love, and, and she was Jewish. And I actually, his biographers have not really talked about this, but I actually think it's really a, a hugely important. It was another experience. Where he realized that in that time in the 19 teens that there were not a lot of uh, there was not a lot of intermarriage. Certainly, it was not really a sanctioned type of relationship that he that people were people looked askew at at a Presbyterian kid and a Jewish girl being romantically involved. Now you know there's who knows what the parents said, but they knew that the relationship was limited they remained as close friends throughout their whole life. That's a whole other story. But I think even bigger than that, having had that experience, my immediate guess is that he loved literature, he was a voracious reader, and more than likely, at least part of it might have been developed in class, you know, in thinking about historical characters and and how the great characters of both history and uh, and of and fiction, you know, uh, there are examples of this where people learn from uh, an experience, whether it's, you know, Hamlet in a reflective moment looking at the, the skull that he holds in his hand or what have you. My guess is there was at least partly, you know, we can probably understand McGill by the, uh, knowing that he was a learner. And he probably took lessons from class and that's part of what i try to celebrate in class certainly is look at this character abraham lincoln who says as late as 1858 the black man is not my equal who by the end of unfortunately his life he's pushing through the 13th amendment partly because of the experience of a number of experiences but partly Experience of going out and reviewing like the 54th Massachusetts, an all black regiment, and seeing what they were sacrificing sacrificing what you know a hundred thousand black troops in the Union Army were sacrificing, and he saw this with his own eyes and said, These people deserve citizenship and so that's an incredibly powerful story. How do you how do you make that
1: relevant to young folks today in your class? I mean, there's one thing to tell the story, sort of like just observing history. But there's something else that you're doing. I mean, incredibly effective. Students talk about your course. They talk about coming out of it, not just knowing things, but actually having shifts in their perspectives. How are you doing that? What, what do you find you can draw from these stories, or how do
2: you think about how you frame the story for them? I don't necessarily demand students to be self-reflective. I mean, I don't say, I want you to write an essay about what Abraham Lincoln's life teaches you. But I think that these are smart kids, and there's a lot of conversation back and forth, and often a question will tie what we're learning or talking about or reading about at that time to some other thing that we've already talked about or even to a current event. And you have to limit it because we have a limited amount of time in class, but they talk about these things, and... You can, I can almost stand up in front of the class sometimes and see a kid who has made a particular stance on something say, oh, okay, I understand now why you see it that way. And what's amazing, if we could just take these microphones and put them in the classroom in the, ten, in the five minutes before I enter the room, it's amazing what they talk about. I mean, sometimes it's fantasy football and sometimes it's, you know, silly stuff, not that fantasy football is silly, but uh, well, I don't do it. I don't know, but the but they talk about they talk about things that matter. It kind of depends on the personalities in the classroom. But you know, my seventh period class right now, there's students in there who are who basically don't believe in God, and there are guys in there who are very religious, and the conversations that they have are ninety nine percent of the time very respectful, but they are really trying to understand each other. So I think they're you know, our best students bring that to the classroom already and I just have to kind of provide the the story or the narrative to let some of that stuff kind of naturally happen on its own. I don't know if that is particularly the best answer, but I think it's the most truthful answer. And um, they're but the conversations often end up being ultimately about, a lot of times they are about character and about how we treat each other and um, and how that sometimes leads to big problems, certainly in history. Um,
1: yes, so so when, when you design a course, or even for that matter, the evolution from when you were a student Researching history and still now are a student of history, mm-hmm. a master of history. Um, do you find that your understanding of what's important to draw out of history has changed as you've continued to grow as a teacher?
2: Wow, um, you know, it's a teaching AP is a fine line, and I don't know if we necessarily want to go down this track right now. I'm actually one of those people who really believes in the possibility of advanced placement. Partly because I think the exam is one of the, the fairer tests of skill and knowledge that you can have in American history. A kid who does well on this exam is super impressive. So um, part of that answer is that I'm, I'm, I'm very concerned about the bigger learning but I'm also constantly having to keep in mind that there is this really tough test that these guys are going to take. So in some ways, as a teacher, you're always trying to prepare for some sort of assessment of what has the student learned as far as just the basic understanding of the American narrative. (laughs) But I don't think it's changed that much in that I've always certainly since i've been teaching history which you know if you go back to like graduate school we're talking 25 years now um i've always been concerned with complexity and understanding that history is not so much about truth as truths and interpretations of history You know, I was absolutely blown away after I'd actually graduated from college with a degree in history to read, you know, Howard Zinn, People's History of the United States. That was a book that kind of blew the top of my head off because I'd never considered the American story from the perspective of a hardcore labor historian like that, basically, or a guy with a labor history. And so I've always been concerned with, coming at people's stories and the story of, of the republic or the story of the nation from as many different angles as possible and and having students feel like, wow, I've just read four different historians' interpretations of this event, and we've looked at, you know, 15 documents. How do I make sense of this? <laughs> so I don't know if – so I've been doing that for a, for – ever since at least I went to graduate school. I mean, that's part of the reason that I wanted to go to graduate school in history. You know, when I graduated from Swanee, I had a double major in natural resources and history, and I thought, I'm gonna go do something in the environmental world. And then I went off to get an environmental studies degree and took a history class along the way, and five minutes into the class, I thought, oh my gosh, I'm gonna be in graduate school for a long time because this is what I really wanna study. And it was his- it was in a history class. And so um, I don't know if that answers the question. Yeah, but, but
1: but, so part of what I'm hearing, and I think this is what the masterful piece of the APU that, APUS that you do, content's important. I mean, it's important that they know things. It's important mm-hmm. that they have details down, because it seems to me the complexity that you're after can't just be the surface set of opinions. It can't just be sort of vague statements. No, you have to be able to support an argument. Right. Yeah. And so the key is you're trying to make sure that the the lessons that they learn, which may be much larger than the specific content itself, is buried in, you know, emerges from specifically that evidence. So that's that balance, it seems. Yes, you're preparing them for the AP test, but more, it happens to be that the AP test is asking about details that you find relevant to asking the larger questions.
2: Yeah, the reality is, is that, and I've graded the AP exam for a long time, you can you can have a very, you can have a perfect score on an essay and have a completely different argument than the essay before it, and and neither are wrong. It's just a different argument. It, I know that sounds a little bit wishy washy, but um, but it's the facts, and and that's part of how that exam. That's part of why I like it. It's set up in a way that a student has to be has to make an argument. Part of it is that if they give you you know, 10 documents, and six really heavily support sort of one approach, and any other combination of six or whatever support another approach, you can get a good score without making the same argument. So there is sort of a creative element to it, which is very interesting, because people don't think of history that way. But when you read history, you see that people make arguments all the time that aren't necessarily in opposition to each other, they're just completely different using the sort of some of the same materials. Okay, so, so, so let's go back to thinking about Ralph McGill
1: mm-hmm. in, in school when he was here. Um, what do you think has changed, obviously content and the way in which content probably has been approached has changed, but it sounds like your interest in working with your current students is to produce the type of engagement with life, engagement with people, engagement with ideas that clearly affected Ralph McGill when he was here and was a jumping-off point for the next steps in his life. Mm -hmm. Uh, How are you doing that? How how do you see or are you learning from what you read about Ralph McGill or about other folks that you've met of honor that you've read and said this is what seemed to be that spark to help them with that?
2: Yeah, like I said, I don't know exactly what happened in the classroom with him. I mean, he wrote very little about going to Macaulay. It's not really in his letters and diaries. All of his papers are in Emory, and I've poured through as much stuff as I could about Macaulay and his experience here, I think. But he identified it as the key piece. He did, he did, mm-hmm. and he talked specifically about, well, and this is probably the answer to the question, actually. What he did talk about were, the relationships that he had with his teachers and i think that's the the thing that really if you're going to talk about what we do great what we do as well as anybody in the world is we have a culture here where faculty when faculty are at their best they are approachable and um part of it is you know just the culture of the school, part of it is, you know, it's residential, but, but I have very close friendships, there are boundaries, but you have very close friendships with students and that allows for all sorts of discussion outside of the class. I mean, one of the things that, that strikes me in looking at, you know, the, the life of John Strang, for example, or his aunt, Frances Thornton Strang, who I wrote a little piece about in a recent alumni magazine is that, and, and um, George Hazard wrote about this in his History of the School, one of the th- amazing things is how much is not documented, the little conversations on the walk to lunch, the conversations with students on a long bus ride back from a cross-country race at you know, 11 o'clock at night, or like last night, every time I'm on dorm duty, I always think, I'm gonna get a lot of reading done, and then I don't ever get any reading done <laughs> because I'm talking to students. For five hours, and um, and those are the sort of magical moments that build a trust, that build uh, you know. I have students coming to me with, "Hey, look at what I just read. This is kind of like what we were talking about a couple of weeks ago," and and it's maybe for another class. Just that sort of. We, we are not nine to five, you know, and that allows for these sort of incredible opportunities and the building of these friendships and relationships. I mean, I still have alumni now who email me things that they're learning in class at college, um, or, you know, we talk about, you know, sort of connect, they're still making connections. So I think that that was important to McGill. He talked specifically about certain teachers he talked a lot about uh, Professor Spencer Macaulay had a profound impact on him. Um, so, yeah. so in some ways, I, my sense is it'd be your contention that the key to a
1: school, the key to a, a, a person of honor, but the men of honor that we're trying to create, would be, first of all, to create a safe enough space that as they learn complex ideas, as they encounter things for the first time, as they encounter a diverse world that they may not have known before Mm -hmm. that they have mentors they have people around them they have other students who are willing to engage to learn in front of each other to not feel like they have to posture or present anything but they have mentors who are creating spaces for them that are safe that they can kind of test out ideas and they can grow in their character that way Um,
2: absolutely and i mean i actually think that that's gets to the the real core too, of, of one of the things that makes us successful, which is that they don't have to worry about looking stupid in front of a girl that they're trying to impress. I mean, that's just, that's not the reason to have single-sex education per se, but we would be dishonest to say that our classrooms are not a freer environment because boys are a little more comfortable than they might be in a co-ed environment. I mean, that's what the boys say again and again, it's certainly something I experienced in class here. And I know that when I got to college, I was not as comfortable, you know, because I didn't want to look like I was asking a stupid question. And so that does allow for, there's a, there's unmistakable freedom that Macaulay guys have in class. There's an immense amount of laughter. There is, um, there's a there's a I don't want to say baldiness but there is a there's a comfort level with being boys and talking about boy topics that work their way in they'll ask questions that I know for a fact they would not ask in a co-ed classroom and the the challenge as a teacher is to keep everything respectful and take it into a place of learning that's important by all, but at the same time engaging their playfulness and their sense of humor and and, the, and getting to the real heart of the real, of the question at hand. Um, but absolutely, I think the comfort level that students feel here is, um, you know, I don't know for sure because I've only taught in a co-ed environment in a college setting, which is a completely different setting. But my guess is, is that if I were to go to an independent school in the South, that the only difference was that it was co-ed. I would probably it would probably be a big adjustment for me, you know, um, at first certainly to kind of figure out okay how do I do this, whereas here I've I've certainly I have a comfort level in the classroom too with these guys that uh, is you know it strikes me in my in thinking about my my teaching earlier that that is a difference. Um, well, and it seems that by creating that comfort level
1: what we're allowing these guys to do is to, one, figure out who they are as opposed to the image that they think they're supposed to present. Absolutely. And by doing that, the reality that they then exist in allows us to help comment on that. In other words, now we know actually who they are. We can actually encourage much more specifically, here are some things you might want to think about, either through our specific content that we're covering in whatever class it is, Yeah, or through the the relationships that we have with them.
2: And then when you combine that with, so like right now, the juniors and founders, I think all of them except for one are in my class. So we're talking about probably a dozen guys who are in the dorm who are also in my class. And you talk about knowing someone. I mean, I know those guys very well. And I can take one look at them and tell you where they are mentally at any given moment. And, you know, that's what I would want to hear as a parent, certainly. Um, And I think our parents recognize this constantly. I hear it constantly from our parents that, boy, you were right on it then at that moment. Um, So, So it gives the guys, in many ways, it gives the guys a sense of
1: you also being a whole person. In other words, it's not just the... APUS history teacher that's fantastic knowing content and encouraging to think about issues of character, but quite honestly, that's an academic exercise. They're going to run into you cross country running. They're going to run into you on History Day. They're going to run into you in the dorm where, quite honestly, you're approaching it in many of the same ways. I mean, it's it's a different type of classroom, or maybe the classroom's a different type of dorm. Yeah. But they're different.
2: You know, you deal with different issues. I mean, like, I, I don't have to deal in the classroom with how. 30 the laundry room is in another dorm or whatever <laughs> but in the, but it's a different sometimes it's a different set of sort of you know comments or questions but they they know me too uh, very well and they have seen the the sterner side of me that that sometimes doesn't necessarily have to happen in class but it needs to happen in the dorm every now and then um and uh so yeah that's They need to see the for you. Yeah. Because that's, it seems to me, that's what... They see me interact with my family, which is a different... You know, that's been an interesting thing this year because I also have my son in class, which has been really an enlightening, um, you know, sort of experience because um, I've just had to learn that, you know, I have to kind of forget that he's my son sometimes in class, you know, and, and otherwise... I want to give him the full experience of being a student in my class. and um, That's an interesting
1: a, a quick <laughs> aside. Do you think he would describe you differently as dad or teacher
2: or dorm parent? Probably. Um, one of the things he said at home was, man, it's amazing how good class is. <laughs> you know, like, this is interesting. Um, and he says it's one of his favorite classes. Part of that is he loves history and the, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. But, yeah, you know, I mean, being at home is more like being one of the students in the dorm. Like, I'm going to get on to him for having a messy room. But in class, it's more of an intellectual exercise, obviously. Um, He said the first couple days it was just really bizarre to, like, see me up there, you know, like, teaching. Because he's had all these other, you know, teachers at Macaulay. But to see me in that role, I think, was a really good thing for him because, and I get a lot of this from him, but mostly from Sarah, from my wife, that he's like, man, dad actually knows what he's talking about, (laughs) you know, when it comes to to American history, yeah. Yeah.
1: So, One of the things we've been doing this past really two years as a faculty is thinking about habits of mind, thinking about Mm -hmm. the things that we want these guys to move away from Macaulay into the next step of their life with skills and attitudes and thoughts about how to learn and how to think about the world around them, so their world perspective, so to speak. What I'm hearing is that you think a lot about this. I mean, your course purpose is more than just preparing for the AP. That may be part of it. But you're really thinking about I'm trying to create spaces that might like a Ralph McGill, allow them to grow into who they are, allow them to be who they are, and then grow into that even further. With a set of these habits of mind that collectively at least the school have said these are important. You're going to take sort of a slice of it. It sounds like from the academic side, the dorm side, and any extracurricular side, all of this is sort of swirling around in the way in which you approach young men sort of straight and, and with, without worrying about mm-hmm. the specific environment they're in.
2: Yeah. Um, I'm pretty cognizant of the idea that I can't really get anywhere with a Macaulay guy if he doesn't think that I'm an okay guy to, to like be around. Um, that's a tough one sometimes because, you know, I've, everybody has their sort of trigger things. I mean, one of the, one of the things that, one of the things that occasionally bothers me, is just any sort of sense of entitlement. Like, well, I can do whatever I want to do, and one of the things I want Macaulay guys to know is that, you know. When you leave these gates, people are going to think maybe one of two things of you. One is, man, I want this guy to marry my daughter. Or the other one is, what a little entitled, you know, whatever they're going to say about their image of, like, what a kid at private school is like. And what I say is, don't be the second thing. Like, be the guy who takes care of people, who makes a difference. And that starts with acting that way inside the gates. So if you're walking across campus with earplugs in, I'm going to say, hey, man, we've made it very clear, like, we don't like that because you're disengaged from the community. And that actually is one that you see sometimes. And some people, you know, are like, wait, nobody else tells me to do that. And that's just my one of my things where I'm like, but we've said it. So... I'm very cognizant of, like, I have a better relationship with that guy if I explain why I'm doing it. Or, obviously, if I already know him, I can just go, I can point to my ear, ear and go, mm-mm, you know, and they'll do it. So, um, so as far as habits of mind, I mean, I do think that, like, teaching all these different things, again, goes back to this kind of relationship piece and being approachable. But, you know, another habit of mind that, that, guys will definitely say about my class and I think this kind of goes hand in hand with with that other thing if you are a hard worker and you take care of other people and you're not just looking out for me 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 if you're a hard worker we're almost never going to find anything negative to say about you you know people say oh well he's a workaholic well that's a problem if that person is not also taking care of the other things they need to take care of their families their community but you know having grit as we say around here a lot you know bearing down and working hard is great and you know you have to balance everything you have to be healthy and that's important to us here as well Um, but one of the things I've learned in looking at Macaulay over the years is man people here have always had to work hard Ralph McGill worked hard Faculty have always worked hard. Um, Clifford Barker Grayson, who I've started looking at in a lot of detail, man, was he a hard worker. Um, And so, you know, that's another one that just, um, you know, a work ethic is certainly a habit of mind that is important. Um, Yeah, I'll... It was
1: interesting, recently we hosted Senator Bob Corker, and I remember him talking to the students... And then taking questions. And one, he was impressed with the level of questions Mm -hmm. the guys had. They were thinking about issues and not just local issues. They were thinking about national and world issues. Mm -hmm. And second, what struck me was the level of thought that he had put into it. This wasn't an image. It wasn't a title. It was his attempt to make a real difference. Mm -hmm. And some people have different policy approaches than, than he does. But a real attempt to bring honor and a dignity and an integrity to making a difference in the country. So maybe sort of, final question for me would be, as you studied men of honor throughout history, particularly those that have been connected with Macaulay, are you finding patterns in what we need to be doing here now to make sure that as they move on, And Senator Corker's not an alum of Macaulay, but Mm -hmm. he represents many folks in that, Howard Baker certainly was, Folks who are making significant differences, not just in their community or in their church or synagogue, wherever it may be, and that's important, but but in the country as a whole, setting policy, setting direction, are there really core central elements that we need to make sure we're doing with our students to create that foundation for that man of of honor?
2: Yeah. Um, Well, okay, to start with Corker, you know, I don't know his story that well. But he does strike me as a guy who has been pretty reflective about – I mean, he was pretty reflective to the student body about how he got to where he is. And I know he was a builder and built a lot of low-income housing and, uh, and was mayor and, and is a guy who has thought a lot about what makes a good community. And ultimately, you know, when you look at someone like McGill um, – ultimately when he was writing about the civil rights movement he was saying how are we going to make a better world how are we going to make a stronger community here in Atlanta and the South nationally and one of the things that he was saying obviously was at some point we have to recognize that these people who are starting to advocate for the ability to stay at the hotel that they want to stay at the lunch counter to have easy access to voting and all these other things, Um, the people who are pushing for the civil rights, uh, we need to listen to them because they are right. And we are only going to be stronger when we come together and stop fighting. And so I think that any opportunities that we can create where boys can understand that building community happens when you listen, when you weigh all of the evidence, when you, and I think most importantly, when your definition of honor means I have to take care of other people to be honorable. You know, the the definition of honor has changed over time. This is something that's really interesting to me. There's a historian named Bertram Wyatt Brown, who's a Southern historian, who wrote a book called Southern Honor 30 years ago. And basically what he said was in the Old South, honor meant if you were honorable, it was essentially the the opposite of being humiliated. So if you were humiliated, in order to defend your honor, you had to defend it with really with violence. I mean, this is why Andrew Jackson walked around with a bullet in his chest, right? It was this sort of dueling mentality. And what we see right now, I think, in American politics is there's people who understand honor in the new version, which is that you... It has evolved into this idea that you take care of others, right? And if you look at the way we define honor here at Macaulay, that's what we say. Corker gets that. There are other politicians who are still following that old model of, you've humiliated me, I'm gonna split your head open. And I think what I would want Macaulay guys to learn is, and McGill was one of the guys who I think ushered in the new definition in the New South, that, that men of honor take care of other people and they understand the difference, and they understand where they're coming from and they have empathy for the sort of different opinion. Whether that's a different opinion on the other side of the political aisle or it's a different opinion across international borders or what-have-you that they understand where they're coming from and so I think you know I think that 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 was part of what Corker's message was or at least a piece of that was that you know and and where he's been critical as you know of of, um, the current administration is just that he doesn't think that that message is what it needs to be. And that's kind of what he said to the, to the student. Right, body. And it
1: sounds like it's very much what's happening in your class on a daily basis. Let's look at these ideas. Let's look at these questions from a variety of perspectives. Yeah. Recognize that people have needs, people express needs, and typically they're fairly rational, and you need to pay attention to what they're saying. Even if you might disagree with on the surface, pay attention to what they're really trying to say. That's a pretty powerful lesson if we can get these guys to do that. That's a huge step forward in their development. Do thanks. Thank you. Enjoy the conversation. Boast your fastest core knowledge, but also what you're doing personally with these guys within the classroom and in the dorm. Really appreciate your time.
2: Thank you.